You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Part 6, Chapter 3 The Way and the Guides Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 to 20 Enter ye in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. For narrow is the gate, and straitened the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come unto you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. By their fruits ye shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore by their fruits ye shall know them. The golden rule is the coping stone of the Lord's teaching concerning the way of the disciple. After it nothing can be added to the exposition of true righteousness. All that remains is to show that life and death rest upon the choice which must be made. The way Jesus has shown is not an ethic, a philosophy of conduct, for that would permit of alternative theories, of a higher or lower level, of more or less. But this determines eternal destiny. Jesus impresses the magnitude of the choice by three pairs of metaphors. The two ways, the two trees, and the two builders. All these reflect the thought of the first psalm, for this likens the man who delights in the Lord of the Lord to a tree by a stream. It declares that the wicked are like the chaff which the wind driveth away, and so suggests the judgment storm which tests the work of the builders, and it ends with showing the two ways and the destiny to which they lead. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. With this, however, the Lord has blended imagery from elsewhere in the word. The figure of two ways is frequent in Scripture from the day that Moses set the choice before Israel. That was in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. Jeremiah gives it a particular and a graphic application when Jerusalem is condemned to conquest and the faithful are exhorted to leave and accept captivity. For them the road to Babylon is for the time being the way of life. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. In general, however, Old Testament usage emphasizes the characteristics of the way rather than the idea that it will lead to a destination. It represents the habit or course either of righteousness or wickedness. 
But to this there are exceptions which many commentators seem to have overlooked. Of the strange woman in Proverbs it is said, For her house sinketh down unto death, and her paths unto the shades. None that go unto her return, neither do they attain unto the paths of life. For this picture of the broad way that leadeth to destruction, Jesus has evidently drawn on this vivid imagery of Proverbs. But he makes one important change. The end of the road is not merely Sheol, the place of darkness and the powerless dead. It is Gehenna, the place of those who are condemned and destroyed. The effect is the same, death. But while the Proverbs has shown the ultimate result to which a certain course will lead, the sermon emphasizes that it will be a judicial death, for there is judgment to come. Another distinction must also be kept in view. The passages in Proverbs give prominence to sins of the flesh, but if Jesus is using them as a basis for his figure in the sermon, then it must be recognized that he enormously widens their scope. For the sermon has made plain two things. First, that the grosser sins, murder, adultery, false swearing, are ultimately sins of the spirit and proceed out of the heart. And secondly, that the sins of the mind, hypocrisy, avarice, ambition, pride, censoriousness, are as utterly destructive of eternal life as those which put men or women beyond the social pale. The self-righteous who judge others are going the broad way to Gehenna as surely as the sinners. The Pharisee and the harlot are treading the same path, but the harlot has the better chance of turning back. The contrast between the well-trodden way to the city's imposing main gate and the overgrown track to an obscure entry in the wall has often been expounded. The narrow gate admits to the kingdom, for Jesus has already said that except your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he is here picking up the same figure. In Luke, this meaning is powerfully endorsed by the context of a similar saying, which is expanded in a way that recalls the parable of the virgins. Here the means of entry is the door of the house, which will one day be shut, and those who then frantically knock for admission will be told by the master, Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. And then Jesus expounds the parable. There, in that place, shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves cast forth without. Life, in Matthew 7, verse 14, strictly the life, is synonymous with the kingdom, as is evident from the parallels in Matthew's account of the young ruler. The life is eternal life, and is contrasted with the destruction. The passage is a perfect example of the antithetic parallelism in every phrase. 
The teaching of Jesus is firmly based on the doctrine of man's nature and destiny. In the final issue, there is no middle way. Men must either perish or receive eternal life. Who will guide the seekers for the narrow way? Many may offer their help, and some may be false guides, blind themselves and leading the blind to destruction. How are they to be recognised? Outward signs may all suggest the man guileless as a sheep, bland in manner and fastidious in ways. He may come as though one sent from God, with the appearance of authority and the forms of righteousness. But at heart he may care for none but himself. Self-centred men are always devourers of others, absorbing their energies and dominating their personalities. But the egoism of these men may destroy for others not only this life, but life to come. Such were the grievous wolves who Paul warned the Ephesian elders would enter in among them, not sparing the flock. By smooth and fair speech they might beguile the hearts of the innocent, but they were causes of divisions and occasions of stumbling. We can hardly doubt that in these expressions Paul is directly alluding to the Lord's words. One test is infallible if rightly applied. The tree will be known by its fruits. You do not gather a bunch of grapes from the spiny acacia. It may be flourishing and leafy, but tested by results it is worthless. In the sense of useless, unsatisfactory, the gospel record uses corrupt, almost in the modern sense given colloquially to rotten or mouldy. In the parable of the dragnet the same word is used of the bad fish, which were thrown away because they were kinds unsuitable for food. So here each tree yields fruit according to its kind. The good gives good fruit, the worthless sort proves in its fruit to be unpalatable or even poisonous. The contrast would make a ready impression, for not only is Palestine the land of such good fruits as the grape and the fig, but it is said there is probably no country on earth of the same extent which has so many plants with prickles and thorns. Not less than fifty genera and two hundred species are so furnished. Like so many of the Lord's figures, this has a history of development in the earlier scriptures and is carried on in those which follow. Jeremiah borrows the idea and almost the exact language of Psalm 1, quoted above, but expands it to show both the source of the fruit and the diverse kinds. The man that trusteth in man, he says, shall be like the heath of the desert, but blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, 
according to the fruit of his doings. As the heart is, so shall be the fruit of his doings. Jeremiah 17, verse 7 to 10. In the New Testament, besides Paul's allusions quoted above, James has one of particular interest because he appeals to the one figure to substantiate another, and both are, in fact, drawn from the words of Jesus. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. He treats the figure of the trees as a familiar axiom, which supports the figure of the fountain, the latter being based on the saying that, Out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaketh, which is closely associated with the reference to the tree and the fruit in Matthew 12, verses 32 to 37. James may help us in determining what is the fruit which so betrays its origin. Is it doctrine or practice? The answer is not as simple as those with a natural predilection for the one or the other would like to believe. John's exhortation to the Jews to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance because the axe is laid to the root of the trees refers primarily to the conduct of life. But in Matthew 12, where Jesus is speaking to those who blasphemed against the Holy Spirit by attributing his works to Beelzebub, words enter weightily into his consideration. Though they could not deny the goodness of his works, the Jewish leaders had represented him as an evil tree, and so he, referring to himself, retorts, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. Verse 33. But when, in the next verse, he turns the same argument against them, their words are the fruit by which they are judged, and they, not he, prove to be the corrupt tree. O generation of vipers! How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. And so by their words they would be condemned, for their words were an evil act bubbling out of an evil heart. Luke's Sermon on the Plain is much nearer to this passage than to Matthew 7 verse 20. It also links the saying directly to the saying about the moat and the beam. But in this context, it is the disciple who is called to test himself by examining his own fruit. Those against whom the Romans were warned were causing schisms contrary to the teaching which the Romans had learned, a reference back to Romans 6 verse 17, where they are said to have been delivered from the bond service of sin by obeying that form of teaching which was delivered them, or whereunto they were delivered. Undoubtedly the allusion is to Judaizers such as those who had caused so much stumbling in Galatia, where they had preached a substitute gospel. 
In Ephesus also Paul had declared the whole counsel of God, but the grievous wolves who would make havoc in the flock of God were men who would speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them. The very metaphor of a wolf implies that, like those mentioned in Romans, they would serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but in their own belly. The context in James also has to do with words and their effects, for he begins, Be not many teachers, my brethren, and continues with warning on responsibility for the misbehaviour of the tongue. Therewith, says he, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the likeness of God. But bitterness and conflict have their source in the earthly wisdom, while the wisdom which is from above is full of mercy and good fruits. The fact is that no such neat division is possible between doctrine and conduct as we are disposed to make. Words are acts. Teaching is life. What a man believes, that will he become. Conversely, what he is reveals what he really believes, and not merely what he professes to believe. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If the gospel of grace is debased, Sooner or later the character which it aims to form must be changed, and if the acts are a denial of the gospel, the teaching itself will be undermined. The New Testament always suggests that false teaching carries with it a moral responsibility. Perverted doctrine is ultimately traceable to a wrong bent of the emotions and will. The result must be in the end, if not immediately, to form a different ideal of living, and therefore a different standard of conduct. It may be an exacting standard like that of the Judaizers, but it is not the standard of Christ. If we ask then, what are the fruits? The answer is that they are whatever the tree produces in words or deeds. The prophets were to be tested both by what they prophesied and what they did. If either conflicted with the Spirit of Christ and the truth, as that truth is in Jesus, then they were false and self-seekers, wolves instead of sheep.
The Teaching of the Master by Brother L.G. Sargent Chapter 4 The Final Test That's Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 27 Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father that is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name, and in thy name cast out demons, and in thy name do many mighty works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Every one that heareth these words of mine, and doeth them, shall be likened unto a prudent man, who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the streams came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. But every one that heareth these words of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, who built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the streams came, and the winds blew, and smote upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. In the act of testing the fruit of the teachers who claim his hearing, the disciple is himself put to the test. Discrimination between the false and the true, the bitter and the good, will be the fruit of his own heart. At the same time that the word is dividing the different classes of men, it is searching the individual disciple, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And the final division will be in the day when the judge will declare, who shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, and who shall be cast forth. For that time of decision, that day is, in biblical and Jewish usage, a technical term. The outstanding fact about these verses is that Jesus calmly assumes that he will be the judge. The destiny of men will be in his hands, and those who come before him will address him with fervent awe as Lord, Lord. In such a connection, Lord passes beyond the mode of courtesy and becomes a divine title. By picturing himself in such a position, he claims to be not only Messiah, but Son of God. For this climax, diligent readers of the sermon are not unprepared. Jesus has equated suffering for righteousness' sake with suffering for his sake. He has given a new Lord as one greater than Moses. The teaching he gave was inseparable from his own person and character. The sermon could have been preached by no one other than Christ. But while he himself has shone through the sermon, he is revealed at this point as though a curtain over the future is drawn aside. Without a word of claim or assertion, the hearers are given a glimpse down the vistas of time and see the judge enthroned, and he is none other than this Nazarene. 
the preacher who could do that was no mere peasant with a genius for morals. Two types are portrayed out of those who come before his judgment seat. The first are wordy and profuse. In their lifetime they have professed his name fervently, for to call him Lord in the full sense of the term is a confession of faith. But it is a barren tree that produces only leaves, and a barren soul that yields only words. In view of this condemnation, others who petition the judge call their works to witness on their behalf. There have been teachers, mighty in the scriptures, powerful in converting men and women, and founding churches. So perhaps we may clarify their claims in the terms of today. And if any critic dares to say they would have been better occupied in feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, let him not overlook that they were following the example of Christ himself. In the days of his flesh he was first and foremost a prophet, and his greatest work was in the forgiveness of sins. To preach Christ crucified and bring men and women to be reconciled to God cannot in itself be unpleasing to him. Yet to these also he professes, and the term seems an ironic counterpart to their profession of his name, he professes, I never knew you. The words are the most dreadful in all scripture. For all their zeal these men were unknown to him because they had never known him. In using his name they had deceived themselves, but he was not deceived. And as the inevitable corollary, he adds in the words of the psalmist, Depart from me, ye workers of lawlessness. In Luke, where they claim, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets, they are called workers of unrighteousness. Neither membership of his church, where he was in their midst at the breaking of bread, nor activity in proclaiming his gospel and establishing ecclesias, ensures his recognition in the day of judgment. We seem to have reached a deadlock. If neither words nor deeds are accepted, what does this judge require? And by what law can it be lawless to follow the pattern of his own works? The solution to both problems is found in the criterion for entry into the kingdom declared in verse 21. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. To do the will is more than to do the works. For all the appearance of zeal, works may be only an external performance, and in the end prove hollow and bitter like Dead Sea fruit. While a man cannot do the will without doing the works, for he is required to do and not merely to know, he may do the works for some other reason than a desire for the fulfilment of God's will. He may do them to gain men's admiration for his gifts, his zeal, or his self-sacrifice, or his secret motive may be to place God in his debt. That is, he may expect God to fulfill his part of a bargain by granting the zealous one eternal life in return for labours and privations in this life. 
Christ is the Lord of love, and by that standard, what is without love is without law. It therefore follows that, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. But the man who makes God's will his own will do the works as though it were by nature. He will not try to keep accounts with God. He will not count that he has done this and that. His right hand will scarcely know what his left hand does. He will have become an instrument through which God's will is fulfilled, because through love his own will is absorbed in God's. Only a powerful motive could so make a man's personality one whole, uniting his heart to fear the Lord's name. Where it exists, emotion, imagination and desire can be drawn to a focus and can reinforce the will so as to give a constant direction to the inner life. Then the man's words and works are not disconnected happenings. The effect of self-centred and incoherent motives. They're parts of a whole, and reflect a greater personality than his own. And for such a man Paul's prayer is fulfilled. The God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved entire, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be hypocrites if we did not admit that such a unity of the mind and will in love seems for every one of us an ideal dimly perceived and unobtainably distant. We cannot maintain our course at all without constant struggle, and the fact is recognised by all the metaphors which liken the way of the disciple to an athletic contest, including the Lord's own words, strive to enter in at the straight gate. Yet this is the ideal to be fulfilled in that future when God is all in all. And where love of God is, we shall imperceptibly grow towards it. Without love it cannot be, and therefore without love there can be no life. Yet nowhere in the sermon, and only twice in the synoptic Gospels, does Jesus use the abstract noun love. In the first three Gospels he is sparing even of the verb to love and rarely employs it, unless he is referring to the language of the Old Testament. Reason for this is not hard to imagine. Abstractions can too easily be detached from reality and become vehicles of cold philosophy or of glib sentiment. The word love in particular tends to gather an emotional aura which misleads as to its meaning so that people say, I cannot love that person, when they mean that they cannot feel an emotional attraction towards him. Jesus would rather give a picture of love in its living manifestation, preference for the concrete over the abstract. So characteristic of Hebrew thought is nowhere more evident than in his words. Yet, if for purposes of thought we are to isolate the quality which is common to all the 
manifestations Jesus describes in the sermon, the one quality which is the root from which they all branch, we can find no word for it but love. But it will be truer to the habit of Jesus and of the older revelation which he embodies if we express it actively in the language of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. In the love which the law demanded and which Jesus exemplified by word and act is the secret of the dedicated will. And this principle must be borne in mind when reading the parable with which the sermon ends. In one of the narrow valleys leading down to Galilee's lake, two men went to build. Summer was young enough for a stream to flow in the rocky bed, but the floods of winter had left behind a stretch of gravel. Here building could begin with little work in levelling, and the water supply was near at hand. One man chose it and made rapid progress with his house. From time to time he looked up with a satirical smile at the other, who was toiling higher up on a shelf of rock. This man, however, knew the country. When winter returned, the stream would fill the valley with a raging torrent. The wind, bottled in between hillsides as though poured into a funnel, would blow with a concentrated fury which would raise great billows far out on the lake. Combined with beating rain, these would put any building to the test. So it came about, and the might of the storm beat in vain upon the house on rock, but the other house it smote. The swirling flood sucked away the gravel and rolled stones against the foundations. Rain came as though with hammer blows, and the whole structure rocked and swayed in the gale, until undermined underneath and battered above. The timbers gave with a groan, the roof fell in and the walls collapsed. Nothing was left but so much debris in the flood. In Galilee, where the sermon was delivered, all would know that one was a sensible man with foresight and the other was foolish, just as they would know the necessity in slightly different conditions of digging through the alluvial deposit to the rock below and building on stone arches in order to have a sound foundation. But did they grasp the same principle in the issues of eternal life? Or did they expect that laws of cause and effect would no longer apply in things of the Spirit? The parable has established three things. First, it has declared again the great principle of human freedom. Men are able to choose on what foundation they will build. Without that freedom, the parable would lose all rational basis. If men were merely automata, predestined to life or destruction, the words would mock them. Secondly, it calls for sustained effort on the man's part. The foundation is not merely hearing the words of Christ, but the doing of them, and on this foundation he must build. And the third and greatest lesson is that, according to the man's doing, so will the result be. 
Never was that lesson more needed than in our own time. Things are as they are, and the consequences will be what they will be, and by no attempt to trick nature can we escape them. Yet people who know that they cannot defy gravitation and the principles of mechanics feel aggrieved that God's ways should be as stable in the spiritual realm as in the physical. They know that the pursuit of perpetual motion is an occupation for the crank, who is living in an illusory world of his own making. Yet in the intangible things they adopt a sentimentalism which would undermine the moral order of the universe. Why should they think they can or should escape the consequences of ignoring divine principles? To deny that life can only be built to last on God's foundation is to deny order and rationality in his creation. It is to mock God, and God is not mocked. For, to borrow another scriptural figure, whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth unto his own flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth unto the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap eternal life. The effect of the divine principles was declared of old in the words which form the germ of the Lord's parable. When the whirlwind passeth, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is an everlasting foundation. The wicked are overthrown and are not, but the house of the righteous shall stand. Like the wall daubed with untempered mortar, the wicked shall be rent with a stormy wind in God's fury, and the wind which will drive them away like chaff is the judgment of God in that day. While this meaning of the parable cannot be stressed too strongly, there is a possible misinterpretation against which we need to be on our guard. It is to derive from the parable a rigid doctrine of salvation by works. Such a misunderstanding would only be possible where the parable was severed from its foundation. The words which men are to hear and do comprise the whole body of teaching which has gone before. That teaching has displayed two contrasting ideas of righteousness, on the one hand the righteousness of a code, and on the other the righteousness of the heart. The defect of a code is that it fails to transform a man's personality. However detailed and exacting it may be, there is a limit to its demands. If every single precept has been carried out, then righteousness has been attained, and nothing more can be required. But supposing a man should conform in every particular to such a standard of external conduct, whole areas of his inmost self would remain untouched by it. Something in the core of his own being would remain not merely unchanged by the code, but outside its reach. Practice, however, will fall far short of the highest standard of fulfilment, and as a result, the man who honestly pursues this legal righteousness will never know true peace of mind. And 
unless indeed his code demands no more than the barest social standards of his day. If he aims at anything beyond this inconspicuous level, he will be perpetually dissatisfied as attainment eludes his grasp. Suppose, as may too easily happen, that his mental honesty flags under the strain. One of two results may follow, or perhaps both in succession. At best he will be content with performing the outward acts, whether or not his heart is in what he is doing. Enough that he goes through the motions of righteousness as a ritual performed without flaw. The more precise his code and the more meticulous he can be in its observance, the more successfully will he hide from himself his inward uneasiness. Once that detached and objective standard has been accepted, the second danger lurks near at hand. He may do the acts in order that men may see how righteous he is. If they are not done for God, they may be done for men. In either case he is a man acting apart, and in the second case he is a dissembler, deceiving others and perhaps deceiving himself. His action is an outward show which his thoughts and motives may flatly contradict. Against all this Jesus sets the only righteousness which has any relation to the kingdom of God, a righteousness which knows no limit, for it treats every act as the expression of a motive and every motive as a potential act. By that standard the Lord against murder condemns anger, the Lord against adultery the lustful look. Its fear is the whole personality, and under its law there is no point at which we can say, we have done enough. The qualities set forth in the Beatitudes are to be reflected in every relation of life, and only those who so mirror the character of the Heavenly Father are the true Israel of God the people of his covenant and his sons. What, then, is the rock? There is an element of truth in a rabbinic interpretation which applied the second part of Proverbs 10, verse 25 to the Messiah as the just one, the everlasting foundation on whom the world rested. For Jesus says, It is the man who hears and acts upon these teachings of mine, who builds to last. Christ, then, is the rock, for from him proceed the words of life which are men's foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In the light of the fact, however, that Jesus himself has said that Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He now assumes nothing less than that, when he speaks, God speaks. If God's word is the substratum of all things, and the words of Jesus are the foundation of life, then the conclusion follows that God speaks in him. No wonder his hearers were astounded for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. 
Here is a humble peasant who speaks words of undeniable beauty and profound insight, and he leads up to an implied claim which goes beyond that of any prophet of old. For it is a claim to divinity. His teaching is the basis on which men's destiny will be determined. Never man spake like this man. Not only is it the foundation, but the word which separates men proves to be his word. Starting with the division between the church and the world, it has gone on to work within the household in distinguishing true brethren from false, and it ends by dividing us under the hearts in that day, when the secret things will be made known. Step by step the action of the word has separated men into two classes, the reverent and the sensual, those who are going towards life and those who are journeying to destruction. The true professors of Christ and the false, and finally, those who do the will of the Father and those who do their own. And in the concluding parable the division is complete. There are those who have built a structure of life and character on his teaching which will stand, while others have built houses which will collapse in total ruin at the coming of the judgment storm. With the day of judgment their quality is revealed, for the word which he has spoken judges them at the last day. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.